0: Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood, and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, and I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood, and it's story time. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> looking at the, the camera view here, I'm like, oh my god, my hair, it's growing so long. Yeah, it's been 26 years since I owned a hairbrush, until... Last Thanksgiving, I said to myself, Self, you're no longer in the Navy. Why are you still doing the high and tight? Let's grow this thing out. See what comes of it. And uh, now you can see why I could relate to the greatest American hero so much back when I was a wee little kid. You guys remember that cheesy but awesome uh, little superhero show back in the 80s? Yeah, you know, the guy who meets the aliens in the desert. They give him the space, the superhero suit, but he loses the instruction manual, so He doesn't know how to use it. Big blonde afro. Yeah, I always could relate to that guy. Anyway, um, yeah, how's everything going? Things been doing pretty well here on the Kingswood abode. I am in week in week four now of the Great Challenge. Uh, I think I mentioned it before. I don't know if I, I know I mentioned it on the blog. I don't know if I mentioned it here. But I'm uh, doing the Great Challenge with uh, my—I don't know if you really call a mentor or whatever—but Dean Wesley Smith has uh, set it up through his uh, site and through his publishing, WMG Publishing thing. Basically, throw some money uh, to get skin in the game, and then got to give him a short story every Sunday by midnight. And if you, uh, you know, until you don't. And it's set to go 52 weeks. Uh, but, you know, if you, the money we gave was pretty much just as an incentive to, hey, I've got skin in the game, something to lose. But in reality, the money we gave them is just going to go to towards paying for a workshop, which I was going to go to anyway. So there's really not nothing at stake there. But got 26 weeks done. Uh, get a 50% bonus on the uh workshop money that I've already contributed, which is nice, and get all 52 done, and it's lifetime free workshops from Dean. I was like, oh, okay, let's do this. I know I can uh, do a short story a week for six weeks, because I've done it for the anthology workshops three years in a row. So, yeah, let's just continue it out for the rest of the year. How hard could that be? <laughs> yeah, right. I guess we'll we'll see, right? Um, but, you know, this week four. I've done three short stories so far. Uh first one was thirty eight hundred words and actually it was a romance, I'd never written romance before, so it was kinda of, little meat cute, so it was kinda of fun. Next one was fourteen thousand words, <laughs> which is one of my more one of my bigger weeks of production ever, I think. Um yeah, what ran at the top of it and uh it was a fantasy swords horsery kind of thing. And this last week was just kind of a weird, silly, I don't even know what you'd call it, kind of mystery, kind of fantasy, because it's got Christmas elves in it. And Anyway, that came to 4,800 words, so a uh, decent amount of uh, word count And uh, for these things, and feeling good, got a good streak going, going to continue. So that's uh, what's been going on there in the writing front, and of course, slowly plinking away at Warfare Qualified. the. Icarin Confederation Navy book that I've been so, taking so long to finish. I'm going to get it done. It'll be done this summer. It better be. Or I'm going to mad at myself. Definitely want to have it ready to go for the fall of the latest. Of course I said that last year. Of course last year I wasn't really writing because of everything else I had going on. But I am writing now, so, anyway, we'll see. Uh, so, yeah, so yeah, pretty pretty decent writing time around here. I hope everything's going well with you. Uh, As you know, last week, the last two weeks, was kind of weird with the podcast, YouTube-wise, but, uh, you know, continuing on now. And uh, we'll just continue on to the next chapter of the Pericles Conspiracy. Uh, When last we left, Joe had agreed to accompany Malcolm to meet his compadres in conspiracy theory land or underground land or, you know, whatever they call themselves, and we'll go see what he has to say let's get right to it, shall we? Enjoy. The Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. Read by me. I apologize. Chapter 11. The Underground. Malcolm had a car waiting near the entrance of the parquet, an older model that would pass unnoticed in just about any corner of the city. Motioning her to remain within the parquet, he looked around carefully as he crossed the street to the car and took a few moments to look beneath it behind every tire and under the hood. Then, apparently satisfied, he opened the passenger door and gestured for her to come quickly. Feeling a bit of a fool, Joe complied, racing across the street and ducking into the car. Malcolm closed the door for her and then hopped in himself. He grinned at her as he closed his own door and started the car. Going a little overboard on the cloak and dagger, aren't you? Joe quipped, instantly wishing she had not. Can't be too careful, Joe. Friends of mine have found car bombs before. One died because he wasn't looking. The smile she had been wearing disappeared, and she felt her heart rate begin to increase. Maybe this was a mistake after all. Then Malcolm fished into his pocket and pulled out a bandana. What's this? Joe asked. A blindfold. For my protection, and for yours. You can't be made to tell something you don't know. You know what? Never mind. Joe opened the car door, and Malcolm grasped her arm. Please, Joe, trust me. I'm not going to hurt you nor will any of the people you meet tonight. She knew she should get out of the car and walk away, but Malcolm's expression was so earnest, so full of need, that she couldn't bring herself to walk away. With a disgusted sigh, she pulled the door shut and took the bandana. Thank you, Malcolm said, and put the car into gear. Joe tied the bandana over her eyes and slid down in the seat to wait out the ride. The ride was long and bumpy with many turns, In reality, it probably did not last as long as Joe thought, sitting there in her blindfold, but it felt like an eternity. Of course, seeing how careful Malcolm was, how willing to believe he might be followed or car-bombed, she figured he probably turned many more times than necessary to throw off a tail, and, she was forced to admit, probably did it to confuse her sense of direction as well, so she could not retrace the drive even if she wanted to. Finally, the car came to a stop, and Malcolm said, you can take off the blindfold. She eagerly complied and sat up straight to take a look around. The car was parked in a small, two-car garage. The parking area next to them was dusty and filled with clutter. Boxes, a workbench, tools, the usual sort of things that people put in garages instead of cars. Looking behind them, she could see that the garage door was closed. The only other way out was through a small door to their left. Here we are, Malcolm said as he turned off the car's motor. Are you ready? Joe nodded, and they got out. At the door, Malcolm knocked thrice, then once, then four times. Joe shook her head and smirked in amusement. Three, one, four. The secret knock was the number pi. Cute. Malcolm noticed her smirk and shrugged. We're almost all engineers here, he said. The door cracked open, and an easily man's voice said, Who's that with you, Malcolm? Josephine Ishikawa, Joe announced. The man behind the door grunted, then the door closed again. Joe heard a muffled electronic beep, followed by a series of rattles and thumps. Slowly, the door opened wide and she was able to make out the man who had greeted them. He was short, wiry, in his early middle years, maybe sixty at the most. His face was long and scrawny, his nose a little bit too large for the rest of him. He wore loose-fitting coveralls and work boots. And he had a plasma rifle, pointed straight at her chest. "'What's she doing here? You were supposed to bring the reporter,' he said, his squeaky voice managing to sound menacing." Joe blinked in surprise. He didn't know? Apparently not, as Malcolm replied, Reynolds is dead. She's all we've got now. Fuck, the man said and lowered the rifle. All right, come on then. The little man turned and vanished around a corner and Malcolm, gesturing for Joe to come along, followed him. They walked down a short corridor that ended in a narrow staircase leading down. The stairs descended far longer than Joe expected, stopping at one landing and bending right before continuing down again. They finally ended, after what Joe estimated to be 50-foot descent, at another door, this one more solid-looking, with a sliding view hole at chest level in an antique intercom box to the side. Looking up, Joe could see a small camera in the corner, looking down at the area before the door, and wondered at the purpose behind the view hole. Then the view hole opened, and the muzzle of another plasma rifle poked out. That answered that. After a brief exchange of words, the second rifle withdrew, a moment later, the door opened and the small man gestured for Malcolm and her to enter the room beyond. Joe stepped through the door and her jaw dropped in amazement. The room she walked into could have been transported to McAllister headquarters without missing a beat. In fact, the controllers in the ECC or in flight control would probably look with envy at some of the equipment they had here. Satellite tracking stations, communication downlinks, interactive star charts, and command summary displays dominated the wall to her right. Off to the left, through a set of plastic glass sliding doors, it looked like there was a lab of sorts, or at least several men in lab coats were working around workbenches in there. Further back, past the working men, was another set of doors marked with containment seals like were used for clean rooms. In the center of the room, a command station similar to hers in the ECC was set up facing the display screens. Past that, the wall opposite her was plain with two standard sliding doors leading to more rooms. A solid thunk from behind them drew Joe's eye as a tall, powerfully built man, dressed similarly to the first but much more effective in the role of imposing security guard, closed the door behind them, leaving the smaller man to his post outside. Seeing her gazing at him, he grinned at her, a broad smile that suddenly made his severe features warm, handsome, and inviting. Joe felt a sudden heat rush to her face as she realized she had let her gaze linger on his impressive figure longer than she had intended, and she quickly looked away. Joe caught Malcolm looking sidelong at her with an amused expression on his face. Laris has that effect on a lot of women. Shut up, Joe replied. She had to force herself not to grind her teeth in annoyance, both at him and at herself. A soft chuckle drew her attention back to the command station, where a plump woman in jeans and a green blouse was just getting up from a chair. A bit taller than Joe, she wore her extra pounds in a manner that only accentuated her natural curves. Add to that a pleasant face with an inviting smile, and Joe supposed she probably did not have much difficulty attracting men, if she wanted to. The woman stepped up to them and extended a hand toward Joe. Captain Ishikawa, I've heard a lot about you from Malcolm. I'm Becky. She had a bit of the land down under in her accent, unless Joe missed her guess. Joe shook hands and was impressed at Becky's firm, confident grip. The pleasure is mine, she replied. Are you in charge here? Becky shrugged her shoulders. More or less. She and Malcolm shared a quick look. A moment of awkward silence followed. Finally, Malcolm cleared his throat. "'Anyway, Joe, you probably want to get down to it.' "'That would be nice.' Becky blinked, then nodded, and led them over to the command station. "'This is a pretty impressive setup,' Joe remarked. And it was. The displays on the far wall showed a complete readout of every satellite in Earth orbit, from the smallest weather bird to the five large space docks in their geosynchronous positions. But beyond that, Joe saw starliners on departure vectors, shuttles running to and from the various orbital stations and Luna, pleasure craft of every kind, everything she would need to manage an orbital traffic control station. How did they get all this? It ought to be, Becky replied. We paid enough for it. Surely this isn't a licensed traffic control station. Behind her, Malcolm half snorted, half chuckled, and Joe found herself flushing slightly. Becky glanced at him and frowned slightly, then shook her head. No, everything you're strictly passive. Receive only. The feds would shut us down in an instant if they knew we were online. Passive only? That doesn't make sense. How do you... Becky interrupted. Every vessel and satellite transmits its location and velocity every several seconds via special coded sequences in its stellar navigation transponder. She looked at Joe with incredulous eyes. You didn't know that? Joe blinked, embarrassment flooding through her like a tsunami. She felt her cheeks flushing, and she nodded quickly. Yes, of course, I just... She managed a half-smile and shrugged. I wasn't thinking about that. Clearing her throat, Joe changed the subject. Where'd you get the funding for all this? Becky and Malcolm exchanged glances and were silent for a long moment. Finally, Malcolm ran his hand through his hair and replied, We provide services to people who would rather not have their comings and goings monitored by the government. Some of them pay quite nicely. He almost sounded embarrassed. For that matter, Becky avoided looking her in the eye. So, narcotics dealers, Joe said. Looks like the news broadcast was right about Reynolds's death after all. Becky perked up, her nostrils flaring and her lips compressing into a snarl as she drew breath to retort. Then Malcolm placed a calming hand on her shoulder, giving it a slight squeeze. At Malcolm's touch, Becky's ire seemed to leave almost as suddenly as it flared up. He spoke in an earnest tone. "'It's not how it is, Joe. Yes, we sometimes assist gangsters,' but we mostly help honest people who have fallen afoul of the law through no fault of their own, or legitimate businesses who find themselves unable to do business effectively with all the regulatory and bureaucratic hoops they are forced to jump through. As he finished, Becky reached up, taking Malcolm's hand into her own as it lay on her shoulder, and exhaled slowly, her shoulders losing their tension. Joe found her curiosity piqued, seeing the strangely intimate physical exchange. Were they evolved as more than just compatriots? So uh, what does this have to do with me, she asked. Okay, just to hold off on possibility possibilities of any other weird things that caused me delays like happened last week or two weeks ago, I'm just going to keep this one to one chapter, and I'll continue on in a few days with the next chapter, until I feel like I'm back in the saddle enough to do two at a time It's not like anything weird's happened with the schedule, but just seems the last few weeks like it's, seems discombobulated, even though it's really not been a little hard to explain. Anyway, uh, hope you enjoyed this chapter. Tune back in, uh, next week. We'll do another one or maybe two, and, uh, if I don't get to it before then, uh, part of me is thinking I should do two chapters this week, so maybe I'll do a second episode this week. But really, next week is the, you know, next scheduled one, and we'll go from there. Also on the plate for next week is a uh, next round of The Infinite Bard. If you guys saw the uh, video or podcast or my blog post about it, uh, a few more awesome writers are going to be putting up their stories for free for you guys to read, and I'll point you to them when those are up. Hopefully you, uh, hopefully you looked at the stories that were up last week and enjoy them. Hopefully you'll enjoy the ones next week as well. Okay, I'll talk to you then. Until till I'm back, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual retailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.